verses 1 through 8. Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word so that it might be a guide and encouragement to us that you would warn us of your threatenings, that we would heed them, that we would believe your promises. Father, we acknowledge that even these destructive forces come from your hand, that you use it for good. Father, we pray that we, your people, would trust not in the stability of this world, for there is none. Father, may you be our true guide and stability. May we find our comfort in you. Father, remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us, Father, that you are the one who carries us through all these difficulties. May we cast ourselves upon you. May we trust in you. Father, we pray if any are here who have not committed their life to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work, that we would look to you as our Savior and Lord, that you are the one who delivers us from the grave. Father, we thank you that you willingly receive sinners. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. It's very easy to think that difficulty comes people's way and that the gospel is not useful in such a time. It's particularly during these times of difficulty that the gospel is needed. It's in times when there is no hope, when the worldly hopes are pulled out from under us like a rug, that men need true hope. And that true hope is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here we think about how Jesus has opened the, he started opening or breaking the seals So this chapter, Revelation 6, we divide it into two halves. Uh, So the four, what they call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this is our section today, 
Lord willing, next week we'll look at uh, the fifth and the sixth seals, that of the, um, the blood of the martyrs, uh, and, and then also the next section uh, regarding the terror that comes due to the Lamb. So as we think through this passage, we think about uh, these destructive forces that God sends. You realize that God is in control of every single one of them. He sends conquerors. He sends war. He sends famine. And ultimately, he sends death. We acknowledge that our lives are in his hands, that uh, life and death God controls. We acknowledge that life is not in the hands of doctors and caregivers. Life is in God's hands. We try to forget about these things. And his word reminds us that he is in control of every detail of our lives. Here we think of, through the, the issues that the recipients of this letter would have been facing. We covered the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3, and how these letters, they weren't written individually to these churches in Asia. Uh, they were written as one letter and given to all of them. And they would have known what it was like regarding famine. They would have known war. They would have known conquerors and being under cruel, cruel tyrants. So they would have been no strangers to persecution, to affliction, and being under the cruel hand of others. And yet this word here was to be an encouragement to God's people then, and may it also be an encouragement to God's people today. Oftentimes we think about how, well, what are the principles that we use to interpret the Bible? This is the field called hermeneutics, uh, where, where we think about uh, the term Hermes, right? This is the, the God, the messenger God, that uh, the hermeneutics deals with the message. How, how are we to interpret it? General, one of the general principles is that we have a simple or literal interpretation, a plain interpretation. We interpret it simply according to the words. Uh, but this book of Revelation, it seems like that rule somehow is a, a bit suspended, where we have very ornate, flowery language, right? Where we think about these writers, we think about these colors, and we want to, to attribute meaning to all of those things. But what, what we need to do with Revelation, we step back and we look at the overall big picture, right? We're not necessarily going to get meaning out of every single detail, because this, this is a, a vision that the Apostle John has received. So we think about the big picture and what's happening. Perhaps the big picture uh, that we ought to remember throughout all of it is that Jesus is victorious and he will return for his people. That despite what we see with our eyes of flesh, what we see is that Christ's church is, uh, is being harmed and that cruel tyrants come, difficulty arises. Yet by the eye of faith, we ought to understand that our Lord Jesus is purifying a people of his very own, that the church is advancing, and that we ought to understand that our, Jesus, our Lord Jesus indeed will win. So as we see this passage, Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8, this is what we see. Jesus sovereignly uses destructive forces throughout history to prepare the elect for glory and the wicked for judgment. Jesus sovereignly uses destructive forces throughout history to prepare the elect for glory and the wicked for judgment. We'll look at this in four points. The first, <clears throat> the white horse brings the conqueror. Second, the red horse brings war. Third, the black horse brings famine. 
And fourth, the pale horse brings death. So the first point, the white horse brings the conqueror, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So we think through what we saw last week regarding Revelation 5, and maybe we go back even to Revelation 4. So uh, the, the scene from Revelation 4, we would, we would call the second vision that the Apostle John had, <clears throat> that he was in the spirit, he received the second vision, uh, and he sees uh, one seated on a throne, and the angels in heaven, the cherubim, the highest angels, that they were around the throne. There were the 24 elders, we think these are the the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, and also the, uh, the 12 apostles. So Revelation 4, the one on the throne, is worshipped. And he is worshipped because he is the one who created all things, and for them they were created and they exist. But then in Revelation 5, we see that it's not only the one seated on the throne, it's the lamb who was slain. That in addition to the one seated on the throne who is God, that the lamb who is slain is also worshipped. He's also praised that the four living creatures, the 24 elders, myriads of myriads of angels, and all of creation give praise to the lamb also. And no one is correcting them because the lamb is God. The lamb is Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our worship. There was bitter weeping in Revelation 5 because the question was asked, by an angel who is worthy to open the book and to break the, break the seals of the scroll that was uh, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And in all heaven and earth and under the earth, no one was found worthy. And John wept. It reminds us that there is no one worthy except the lamb who was slain, the, uh, the lion of Judah, the root of David, that this lamb, our Lord Jesus, was able to take the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So there was successive series of worship offered to the lamb by the four, uh, four living creatures who are the cherubim, the 24 elders, myriads of angels, and then all of creation. So today we, we think about the, the, the scroll. So in Revelation 5, you had the scroll with the seven seals. And then Revelation 6, we have the opening uh, in our section here of the first four seals. So perhaps for many, the most pressing question of this section is the identity of the rider of the white horse. There, there are quite a lot of interpretations regarding this. One is that the, the rider of the white horse is Jesus. The opposite extreme is that the rider of the white horse is the Antichrist. And perhaps some of you are wondering, how can both of those be true? Or how can either one be true? Well, if we think through the issue, if you have any verse and it says Christ there or Lord, and then you substitute Antichrist, well, you could come, in, come up with some pretty bad ideas. For example, Luke 4.8, you shall worship the Lord and serve him only. If we substitute Antichrist for Lord there, we're going to come into problems, major problems. 
This is going to be not only heretical, but it's going to be blasphemous. But here, uh, I can say that whether or not we interpret this rider of the white horse as Jesus or as the Antichrist, I don't think there's a huge difference. What we have to do is guard that all of these four horsemen or the riders of the four horses are under Christ's control. So if you interpret it as, as Jesus, then he's the rider of the, white, rider of the right horse, and the plagues, the other three, follow him. I think it's actually much more consistent if we say that uh, the, um, there's, there's harm. It's not Jesus who's riding the white horse. Uh, the conquerors refer not to Jesus who conquers. Revelation does talk about that. But it's referring to the conquerors throughout history, that uh, wicked men, uh, common men God raises up, as conquerors. It's, it's one, of the, uh, one of the beginnings of these other plagues. So we see that Jesus in control, is in control of all of them. He, he uses them, and they're all under his sovereign control, and we, we acknowledge that either interpretation works out fine. We think through this first, um, this first writer, uh, that uh, this writer had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Throughout history, we think about how there have been rulers who lord it over those who are under them. And they wield what seems like absolute power. They can take life without question. Uh, new dynasties come, despots are raised up, and uh, others are displaced. The cycle continues. Typically what happens is that when one ruler comes, uh, the other ruler doesn't just see, hey, you know what? I'm starting to lose power. I, I, should, probably, uh, I should probably leave my palace and, uh, and hide out in the woods. No, there's usually a, a huge shedding of blood. This is what, this is what the life was back then. <clears throat> Here we think also uh, about how all of these cycles, all of these people who are in power, have been placed there by God. The scripture affirms that. Revelation 13, 1. I'm oh, sorry, Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The Apostle Paul was writing this, uh, this letter to the Romans, even as uh, he was probably under house arrest or, or, or imprisoned, right, in various times by the Caesars, and you think about, hey, he's, he's at the same time, he's, he's under their unjust sentence, but he's also saying that God has placed this person there. Daniel 4.17, the sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Here we ought to see that God is the one who places people in authority. If there's anyone who has authority, it's been given by God. Whether it's parents, whether it's uh, mayors, or governors, or presidents, or, or kings, anyone who has authority receives it from God. Despite the wickedness of rulers, Christians are reminded to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. 1 Timothy 2, 
1 to 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Even though there are wicked men who advance, despots who rule, that we're commanded to pray for them. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he uses it and he directs it like a water course wherever he chooses, like channels of water. Meaning that we ought to pray for our rulers because God changes their hearts and changes and guides their decisions. You know, we think about how, how is it that God uses conquerors in the past? Well, I'll give you some simple examples. Alexander the Great, supposedly, uh, he conquered, defeated all kinds of enemies uh, of Greece, and this was before he, he reached the age of 40. I don't think he lived to 40. But what he did then was he, uh, he was able to establish a common language, that of Greek, so that after the Greeks uh, were no longer in power, the great power of the world, uh, of the world then, uh, the Romans came up, but the Romans didn't say, you know what, anyone who speaks this Greek language, their tongues will be cut out. He didn't say that. They didn't say that. They said, hey, we're going to keep this Greek language. It, it's, it's good. And then they also went conquering. And when they conquered, they built all these roads, right? Because they need to move all their, all their uh, heavy machinery and equipment uh, for, for their warfare. But it also provided roads for the spread of the gospel. And we see that God uses these things. You see these conquerors. Uh, and their efforts, God used in other ways. We're reminded regarding conquerors that Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's also the conqueror of conquerors. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We see also, remember that Revelation we have so much of the Old Testament, Old Testament allusions. There's probably like several hundred of them. We also see that those, three, those seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the, the details mentioned there come up again later in Revelation. We see that in Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. We see also regarding conquering, Romans 8.37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this is the first point, the white horse brings the conqueror. The second point, the red horse brings war, in verses 3 and 4. And he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. It's a reminder that nations set up alliances. But during difficult times, these alliances are broken all the time. Men's word, the, the word of princes and rulers, are easily broken. The, the world, knowing peace, 
only knows peace as, okay, there's not active conflict going on. So this is what the world defines as peace. Hey, there's, there's no active warfare going on. And you think throughout history, is it the case that there have been huge periods of peace? No. There, there's some who think that man is improving. They're getting progressively better. Right? This, is, this is often the, the thought of, hey, we're, we're not going to have warfare anymore. Now that I remember back in the 90s, someone said, hey, now that we have the Internet, there's going to be world peace. So why is that? Well, well, the guy in Norway can communi communicate with the guy in Zimbabwe and they can become friends. It's like, well, hey, the guy in Norway and Zimbabwe have nothing against each other. It's the people who share a border, right? They, 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 they're the ones who hate each other. And, and, and you know that the, the Internet is not going to establish that for us. This lack of world peace is only an evidence of sinners lacking peace in our hearts. Why is it that we have this warfare around us. It's because there is a war raging within our hearts. The first thing that we lack, the sinners lack, is we lack peace with God. Because there's no peace vertically with God, then there's no peace within. It is only by Jesus Christ that we have true peace with God, that he himself is our peace. That he broke down that dividing wall. That he has established peace with God. That we receive that peace by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his perfect work. Faith in his sacrifice. Faith in his righteousness that we lack. So having this peace with God, then we can have peace within. There's, there's rest in our hearts. That Jesus gives true rest for our souls. And having rest within, then we can have peace with others. Right? So we have to have peace within in order to have peace with others. And we see that in this situation, it's describing warfare. That the rider of the red horse, that he comes, he's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. That there would be killing. That there would be the taking of life. That whether it be family feuds or national feuds, that uh, we ought to understand this last century, the 20th century, you know, you think about the principle of, hey, man's getting progressively better. War will eventually be gone. No, if anything, the 20th century was probably the bloodiest century in history. When will these wars come to an end? They'll come to an end when Jesus returns again and he establishes true peace. We're reminded, even in warfare, even in violence and in turmoil, that Jesus is the one who brings us true peace because he is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 speaks about our Lord Jesus. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus also said to his disciples, John 16, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is Jesus' assurance to his disciples, 
He's overcome the world, meaning he's conquered the world. So that's the second point, the red horse brings war. The third point, the black horse brings famine, in verses 5 and 6. And he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Here, perhaps you're seeing that there is some uh, commonality, there's some linkage uh, with these four uh, horsemen or these four uh, destructive forces. So you have the conqueror, uh, you have war, you have here famine, and then you will have death. You look at how they're coupled together. When you have a conqueror, for example, you look at the Trojan War, hey, there's um, that gal, Helen, I'm going to go, uh, this prince was at Paris, wants her, so that there's war, and, and you think about some petty things, right? Well, a conqueror wants to conquer some people, so then he declares war. So with a conqueror, you have war. And suddenly, on this side and on that side, they're saying, hey, we have these wars expected, so we're going to call you men out of the agricultural industry, out of the food industry, and we're going to make you soldiers. And what happens there? You're going to have famine. This is exactly what was expected uh, when the Ukraine and Russia uh, war go, goes on is that there's all this wheat being produced in Ukraine. People knew this and, and for, for quite some time, for, for hundreds of years, Ukraine has produced uh, good quality grain, wheat. So the expectation is that, well, something's going to happen when these men are fighting. They're not working the fields, so w- the price of, of grain is going to go up. This is a, a human-induced famine. Here we think about how uh, then when people lack food artificially or or because of climate or whatever, uh, then there'll be people who are starving and then people will find alternate food sources. Some of that stuff uh, may not be nutritious. Instead, instead it may actually be bad for you and, and we can see where pestilence could come in from that. We have the, the rider, this rider of the black horse, that he has a pair of scales in his hand. And people used in the past scales to partition out an exacting portion of food, an exact measure of food during a famine. And then we look at the, um, the economics of it, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So we think back to the New Testament, Jesus' parables, uh, the, the memory says that in Jesus' parables, a denarius was the typical day wage for a laborer. So a person worked a whole day and they were paid a denarius. But we're told here that a quart, well, you think about a quart or a liter, whether you want to go uh, American units or metric, a quart and a liter are fairly close in in volume. Uh, So a quart of wheat for a denarius, it's saying that a man works a full day and the only thing he can afford is a quart of wheat, which is about what a man would eat for one day. 
So you think one quart of wheat will probably make about a loaf of bread, a bigger loaf or two small loaves, but then he would eat that himself. This means that he can't even cover any of his living costs or his other, his, uh, uh, other pay that he needs. Uh, if he has a family to feed, and we're, and we're seeing that this was, this was very bad news, he would, have, he would have had to then uh, use his denarius for the day to buy three quarts of barley. So uh, barley is, is an inferior grain to, to wheat, is less nutritious, uh, typically often used for animal feed. Uh, but here we, we see what happens during a time of famine, is that the cost of food goes up significantly. You know, the thought here is that uh, if, if a day laborer made somewhere around $100 or $200, uh, you would think you could walk into a store, e even on that expensive Grand Avenue, right? You could, you could get a loaf of bread for maybe 5 or $6. And, you know, you go into Aldi, you probably get it for $1 or $2, right? But imagine if that loaf is going for a full day's wage, $100 or $200. And we're thinking that's, that is huge inflation. This is what happens when famines come. Here we see also the mention, and do not harm the oil and wine. Do not harm the oil and wine. What we ought to understand is that apparently there is some conversation. There's some dictation going on. So God's decisions are carried out, and then these four living creatures are, are basically uh, repeating it and casting it down. Meaning that you think about our entire economic system. Right? You think about the field of economics, and uh, there's micro, there's macroeconomics, and you think about how uh, government, uh, there's the laissez-faire, uh, leave-alone economy, right? So general system is governments, hey, we should just let the economy go by itself. Other countries say, no, the government has to regulate what goes on. Despite all of that, and all of these different philosophies, what we have in the throne room there is he's saying, hey, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. You see what's going on here. God is saying, hey, he's, he's actually setting the price of the commodities. So what we think is, well, that's human demand. That's going to set the price. But God is actually in control of economies. You think about how economies could break down so easily. We could get runaway inflation. God is in control of all of those things. You think also about uh, the oil and the wine. So uh, oil, whether it be olive oil or other types of oil, th those are, are more premium products, uh, what in a famine people might have to do without. But the oil and the wine, so the, so the grapes in the vineyard, that these are things typically were sold more expensively. Uh, we see that God does those things. Even during the plagues of, of Egypt, during the plague of hail, uh, we're told that the flax and the barley crops were ruined, but we're told God spared then the wheat and the spelt. That God has control over the growth, but he also has control over the economies. We see that God also uses famine. We see that in the lives of Abraham and Jacob. During times in their lives, they had to travel. They had to leave the land they were in to go to a foreign land, because there was famine in their land and there was food somewhere else. So the, the idea is that, hey, uh, 
I think Jacob said to his sons, essentially, are you going to sit there and stare at your navels? Or are you going to go to Egypt where we hear that there's food? You should probably get going there, bring money to buy food so that we don't starve and die. We think also about how uh, this can be true for us. Whether famine for work, right? Famine for work, then that means, hey, I can't find, can't find a job here in the Twin Cities. Well, then you have to go where there's work, where someone is willing to hire you. So people move on because of work. <clears throat> Here, we also ought to remember that God tells us in the Lord's Prayer that we ought to pray for our daily bread. If anything, this is a reminder of who is providing our daily food. We need these reminders all the time. It becomes too easy for us to think mechanistically, to think from the perspective, wait a minute, why am I praying and asking God for bread? What I do is I go to work, I do a full day's work, and I get paid a wage, and then I go to the store, I buy food, and plop, hey, there's food on the table. Hey, wait a minute, that's maybe a little too uh, thinking with our, or judging by our eye of flesh. God has reminded us, he provides us our every need. He gives us air, he provides our blood. He, he gives us, uh, he gives our, uh, our food. He sustains our faith. We're reminded that, uh, that we ought to give thanks to God. Realize that he is the one who provides us all that we need. It's also a reminder to us that we ought to take care of others who are in need. We see that pattern in Acts chapter 11 that there was a famine in Judea. And there were those, was it in the church in Jerusalem, who sent alms, they sent gifts to those, uh, the, the church in another place. So that we ought not to take for granted the things that you and I have every day. Because these things come from our God. So that's the third point. The fourth point, the pale horse uh, brings death. <clears throat> the pale horse brings death in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. <clears throat> we think about Death. This is the fourth rider, the pale horse, meaning the, the sickly horse, and uh, his name was Death. This is, this is the only writer who had a name. The others were assumed, but this writer is Death. We think about Death and how there's a certain oddity. Most cultures despise Death, or rather they fear Death. They don't want to think about Death. So you think about various cultures, and uh, they don't like having the word Death used. So they have euphemisms, right? This idea of he is, uh, he is, he's passed away, he's moved on, he's no longer with us. All of these terminologies are euphemisms for death because in general cultures don't want to be reminded about death. You know why? It's this simple. It's a reminder that God has appointed all men to die and after that to face judgment. It's a reminder that all men must answer to God. 
Then you have the oddity of the subculture. So most people don't like to talk about death or think about it. But then you have this subculture that loves death and is fascinated with, uh, with, with that which is uh, morbid. And there is a glorifying of suicide. You see that within our, especially within our youth culture, within the, the young males 18 to the 30 or so, that that's the highest uh, demographic for suicide. And you think about how Satan loves suicide because it cuts people off from any hope of the gospel. It seals their eternity. And this is why Satan wants to promote uh, the culture of death and suicide. You see also a mention here about pestilence. So the, the four things, sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. So we think about where pestilence and wild beasts come in. So pestilence is who catches the plague, but then there's also life and death who dies from the plague. We think about how we had this recent pandemic in 2020, and the descriptions were that uh, there was no massive worldwide pandemic uh, for about 100 years. It was the 1918 uh, uh, flu pandemic, but... Uh, you think about how God controls all those things. Psalm 91 speaks about the plague and how God controls the coming of the plague, who dies to the plague, who loses their life. We think also of uh, wild beasts. The God's warnings to Israel was that if they rejected him, if they rebelled against him, that he would send wild beasts. So their cities would become desolate such that wild beasts would occupy it. And then they would, uh, animals, wild beasts would dwell there and attack them. And we think about how death, our Lord Jesus, is the good answer that we have to death. Proverbs 8:36. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul, all those who hate me love death. We have in our Lord Jesus one who is the hope and the answer to death. In John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Are you one who fears death? Do you fear the day of your death? You realize that it is entirely natural for man to fear death because there's a certain unknown about it. But there is one who is the true conqueror. He is our Lord Jesus. He has conquered sin and death in our behalf. And that death then has a new meaning for Christians. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? You realize that Christians will still die. But death has a new meaning. For the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, death is the loss of everything that they see, all that they hold dear. But you realize for a Christian, death is the fulfillment. It's the realization of everything that you desire, everything that you're promised. It is paid in full, so to say. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And that by faith, Jesus gives us a new view of death. He gives us what the world completely does not understand, that we welcome it. 
Here we think about how this word, this passage, and these plagues are a reminder to us. It's a needed and a helpful reminder that God is in control of every last detail of human history. This is an assurance to you, God's people, that you are entirely under God's sovereign and loving care. Everything around you is there for a purpose. There's no detail in your life that is out of place. Every trial and calamity and opposition is planned by God. Don't, don't be like me. I remember through, through a difficulty, I, I thought, God, you got the wrong guy. No, he got the right guy. It's, it's the person who needed it. That's me. We see the, the dual effect of God's rule. That God's righteous and loving rule will bring praise and gratitude from his children so that faith might be strengthened. How often do we see this? I have a good friend who was a non-Christian all his life, not raised in a Christian home, never darkened the door of a church, served in, in, uh, in various roles for our country, and then he developed cancer. And then it was in his treatments, when he wasn't expected to live, that he heard the gospel, and he believed it. And he was a changed man from it. And then you have others, Christians who, who have a horrible diagnosis, and in it, they reject Christ. You, you see the opposite effect, too, because per, perhaps in those situations, those who were professing faith in Christ were saying, hey, God, I worship you because I, I don't want to have all of these bad things come my way, these destructive forces. This is why we're worshiping you, so that you would clear the path, that you would be like the, the snowplow God, and that, that this idol that I have would just make my life easy. And since this difficulty has come into my life, whether it be uh, famine or, or disease, you're not doing what, what you're supposed to be doing. And, and, and because of that, I'm not going to worship you anymore. And, and then these people, they, they say, hey, we're, we're done. We're not going to worship you. Perhaps at times there is for you and for me a need to be, to be reset. And we ask ourselves, why are we worshiping the true and the living God? Is it because he's the snowplow God who takes all the difficulties away? It shouldn't be. We should be worshiping him because he deserves it. All the time he deserves it. The wicked will curse God because of the difficulties they face in life. But may those difficulties remind us that the God who sends them is the God who knows our every need. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our, our lack of maturity and he sends those our way so that we might be purified, that we might be sanctified, that it would bring him praise, that it would develop in us uh, thanksgiving, that we would give thanks to God who knows what is best for us. This is also a dreadful reminder that conquerors, wars, famines, disease, wild beasts, whatever it is, it's a dreadful reminder that the wicked and unbelieving will have their lives required of them. And God will get them in some way. In some way. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Reminded also that uh, evangelism is particularly needed during these difficult times. 
It's easy for Satan to step in there and say, hey, 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 no, 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 you, you gotta, you gotta eliminate the gospel. You gotta, no, that person's not in a mood here. They're, things are going bad. You, you should share the gospel with them when everything's good. No, because there will never be a good time to share the gospel. How necessary, how needed it is that when men are lacking hope, uh, lacking anything good, it's particularly during these times that we should be ready to share the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We think also about the reminder that our God never has a fail. We think about disease, we think about famine, think about the dangers of life. Reminded of the scriptures, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think about these difficulties that could come. May God use these to refine you and me. May we not fear them, but we trust in God that he sends them. He sends them for our good, that we might depend upon him all the more and give him praise, honor, and worship. And we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are the hope of eternal life. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We acknowledge, Father, that difficult times have come and will come. That throughout history, uh, there have been these destructive forces. You've used them. And Father, remind us that our true hope is in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you graciously receive sinners and that you command that we come to you, that we command to you uh, eagerly, that we command to you uh, with boldness, knowing that we will find grace to help in our time of need. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.